Turn your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 7 will be our text for this morning's message, Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 7. Please stand with me as we read God's Word together. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed." Let's pray with me this morning as I speak on this passage and under the title, Lord of Lords. Please pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. God, I pray that you would help me as I speak it, as I communicate your word, that you would give us understanding. I pray that you would help me to communicate your truths with clarity and not merely my Ideas that you would open our hearts to receive your word and to be shaped by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What harm is there for you to say, Caesar is Lord? That question was asked of 86-year-old Polycarp in the year 160 A.D. As Polycarp was under arrest for refusing to abide by the law of the land that required him to worship the emperor. He was required to simply say, Caesar is Lord. And Polycarp, in front of who knows, hundreds of people perhaps, maybe thousands, about to be burned to the stake, refused to say those three words because he believed that Jesus is Lord. The magistrate who was overseeing his execution offered a way out. Polycarp, you can leave, he said, if you would just take a pinch of this incense and, and, and put it in the altar before the statue of Caesar. And Polycarp said, 86 years I've served Christ, and he has never done me any harm. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? 
And with those words, Polycarp was burned at the stake. Now, I just read to you Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. And if you can sort of sympathize with me that it's sometimes hard to read these seven verses in our uh, modern-day 21st America, century America, imagine how hard it may have been to read those words in Polycarp's day. Verse 1, which says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. What does Paul mean? And how is this an Easter message? Some of you probably, you, you might be visiting with us today, and you're thinking, why did the pastor choose these seven verses as his Easter sermon? Well, that's the question I was asking myself as I was preparing. <laughs> no, I'm just playing. We typically, it's our custom to just kind of go through a book of the Bible. We're going through Romans. We just finished Romans chapter 12. So welcome to the Garden Church. We're talking about taxes this morning, and Tony claps for it. And then next week, we'll be in the next couple verses. And so we're just walking through. But here's my other answer. What does this passage have to do with Easter? Well, it has everything to do with Easter. Listen, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then it would all be pointless. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then there is no reason we need to wrestle with verses 1 through 7 of Romans chapter 13. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there is no ultimate authority. But Jesus did rise from the dead. And so that means every bit of this is his word to us with his authority. And so therefore we look at it this morning. Let's first deal with the text as it is. Look at verse 1. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Every person. That means Christians and non-Christians. Very broad. And though he definitely is referring to all people, he is specifically, Paul the Apostle who's writing this, is specifically writing to the Christian. And he's writing on this topic, how shall I now live? Now, remember that. Lest we think that what he's saying is, is live like this in order to be saved. As I've been trying to emphasize to you since we've turned into Romans chapter 12, that we are, in, we are in application of the gospel message. Meaning, Romans 1 through 11 has been a very lengthy exposition on salvation by grace through faith. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for example, I'm just going to walk you through the Romans road. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23, Paul said, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Romans 10, 8, and 9 says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Meaning we are saved not by works of righteousness, but by the grace of God. And so then when we get to Romans chapter 12, we begin with a therefore. I appeal to you, therefore, 
based on these things in Romans chapter 1 through 11, based on the grace of God in the gospel message turning to Jesus Christ. Therefore, how do we now live? And this is important because some of you think that we have to do all of these good things in order to be saved. And that's not the gospel. That's a doctrine that will send you to hell. The only way any of you can be saved is by God's grace through turning to Christ in faith. And so if that light bulb is turning on for you right now, come into the family. You are saved by His grace. Amen? So then Romans 12 has been this, this chapter of love. And then in verse 8 we see, uh, of chapter 13, we see more of the love theme. So Romans chapter 13, 1 through 7, this little section on the government, is actually part of this bigger question on how do we now live in love. So it's rooted in Jesus' teaching that the law is summed up in these two words, love God and love your neighbor. And so being subject to the authorities and honoring the authorities is part of that second command to love our neighbor. How shall we now live? So as we read this, what we discover is that we are witnesses to the transformative power of the gospel message through being subject to the governing authorities. Very interesting. Now, you see, as Christians, we want to glorify God with all of our lives. Amen? The challenge for us, though, is that we leave here on Sundays and the rest of the week, Monday through Friday, we're operating as regular citizens in regular mainstream society. So as soon as you leave here, assuming you're driving home, you've got to follow a speed limit. If you're taking the bus, you have to get a bus ticket. When you get home and tomorrow evening you're going to do some cleaning, you use approved cleaning solutions. You receive wages as required by the government. And if you pay people, if you employ people, you pay wages as required by the government. On April 15th, your taxes are due. For many of you, you use FDA-approved standards in your workplace. You go into voting booths. You get called in to serve on juries. In our city alone, there are thousands of laws which govern our everyday life. You can look up the Baltimore City Code of Public Local Laws. And there are 32 articles, each one of them downloadable, PDFs with hundreds of pages and thousands of laws. Laws on housing, laws on waging, laws on the harbors and the docks, laws on, laws on the disposal of waste material, laws on sanitation, laws on water, laws on public transit, laws on traffic, laws on zoning. And so let me just say this. I love this text because it shows us how all of life can be lived and is to be lived under the glory of God. 
done so as an act of worship to God. Even something as mundane and frustrating as paying our taxes. So, the question I want to look at is this. How does submitting to the government give glory to God? Two points I want to draw out. Number one, God is the God of authority. And number two, we live as if God is the God of authority. So verse one continues. Follow with me in your text. He says, For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Listen to that. There is no authority that exists apart from God. God is the God of all authority. And this truth is emphasized seven times in these seven verses. In verse 1, he says there is no authority except God. Verse 2, he says, God has appointed all authorities. Verse 4, he says that he, the governor, is God's servant. In the end of verse 4, he says he is the servant of God. He continues, he says he carries out God's wrath. Verse 6, the authorities are ministers of God. Question, church, who has ultimate authority? God does. You see, Paul is not writing these seven verses just to appease Rome. He's writing in a, in a subversive kind of nature. And I want you to feel that this morning. In Rome, they viewed their emperors as gods, not as a servant, but as gods. Ten years before Jesus was born, Emperor Augustus was hailed as the, as the Savior and as the Son of God. It was said of his birth that his birth marks the beginning of the gospel. Emperor Nero, who came into power right around the same time as the writing of Romans, was considered divine. The year, right around the year that this was written, Nero was made the chief priest of the Roman religion. And he insisted that all of his subjects worship him. And so what Paul is doing immediately here is he's limiting Nero's authority. Listen, it's not just the church that has God as our authority. And then the government's kind of over here doing their own thing. But what he's saying is, is that all things, including the government, including Nero, including the United States government, including the state of Maryland and the city of Baltimore, all governments are under, placed under the hierarchical order of God. He's giving God his rightful place. He is the Lord of lords. So therefore, God dictates morality. Therefore, God defines what is good. Therefore, God defines what is right. So, therefore, governing authorities are servants of God, he tells us. Now, governments, then, don't possess some kind of authority in and of themselves. This is what we would call a delegated authority, meaning God has delegated authority for it's 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 his authority 
to be used for His purposes. Two times in this passage, the rulers are called God's servants. One time, they are called ministers of God. Now, we should not understand that in some kind of religious context as if they are a minister. That's not what he's saying. What he's doing is he's putting the rulers into their place. And he's saying, you are a servant of God. Almost like a check yourself. You are a servant of God. But he's also instructing us. Caesar is a servant of God. How so? How so? Let's go back to Romans 1. You have to turn there, but just remember, Romans 1, what's the main theme of Romans chapter 1? Is it not that we have rejected the authority of God? That's how Paul begins the whole book, a rejection of authority. And then as a result, Romans 1 kind of highlights this spiral into immorality, gross immorality, sin, injustice, and the list goes on and on. And so, so in what way then is the governor a servant of God? Well, he's a servant of God in this sense. He is there to constrain evil. So the North, North African theologian Augustine, he said on the government, he said, the government is a necessary evil. Not that the government is evil, but it's necessary because of evil. If there was no evil, there would be no need for the government, Augustine would tell us. Without, then, these servants, society would spiral into chaos. Imagine, imagine a world in which there are no speed limits as your children are walking to school. Imagine schools being a place of lawlessness. Imagine there being no rules against child molestation. Imagine that there is no 911 to call at 2 a.m. when somebody breaks into your house. Imagine there are no laws on paying fair wages. Imagine that there are no laws against kidnapping and no deterrent to murder. See, human governments exist because human evil exists. And so that leads me to the next point. Governing authorities are servants of justice. They're servants of God and they're servants of justice. Justice. So why should we, why should we be subject to them? Look at verse 2. He says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. That word judgment there is, I believe, referring to the final judgment of the wicked. What he's saying is, is that lawless behavior characterized in this world is an outgrowth of the inner lawlessness of the heart. You see, at the core problem of every human being is a lawlessness, going back to chapter 1. We don't want authority. We buck at authority. We despise authority. Why? That's the disposition of the fallen human heart. You know what Jesus said about the centurion that he interacted with? He said he is the, he is the most God-honoring man in all of the land. Why? He called him a man who was under authority. This was a man who knew that he was 
under the authority of somebody and ultimately God. But we are rejectors of authority. And that's why, that's why we need these servants. He grounds it in verse 3. For rulers, he says, are not terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. Now, when I read this, this is almost shocking. I was, as I was studying this, I put like a big exclamation point next to verse 3. And I asked myself, I said it out loud. I was like, how can you say this, Paul? You guys ever just talk to the text? Because I, I immediately thought of the reality that Paul is living and serving under the reign of Nero. Paul is going to be put to death by Nero within the next decade. Paul has been locked up. Paul has, has, has been beat. He has been whipped. Paul is not naive. And he says here that, that, that authorities are a terror to, not to good conduct, but to bad. And we look at the life of the early church, and it almost looks flipped. That the rulers are a terror to good conduct, but promote bad. Are you with me? Well, here's the answer. Paul is not writing about every ruler in every situation. He's speaking in general terms as to how these servants are to act under God. So think of it this way. R.C. Sproul, he points out on this point uh, that, that Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, and he, he talks about spiritual wickedness in high places. And that would be a reference to Satan and to his dominion. And what, what, what Sproul points out, and I think he's right, is that there is then, therefore, this institutional kind of sin. Sin is not merely individualistic, but it's systemic. It gets into our systems, and it gets into our institutions, and it gets into government. The whole book of Revelation, which we've been studying on Wednesday nights, talks about Babylon, which is a nickname for Rome. And, and the whole book is saying, look, one day you're going to be freed from this totalitarian regime which means government can be very, very wicked. And so Paul here is not saying that government always does what's right, but he's speaking in general terms of common grace as to why God ordained governments. So this general truth then applies to all, that they are to be a terror to bad conduct. And we could make a case for even the worst governments in human history at some level restrained evil, meaning things could have actually been worse. Verse 3 continues. He says, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out the wrath of God on wrongdoers. So one of the reasons that Paul wrote this was because in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, he just told us to not avenge our enemy. But now he's writing about one way that vengeance is actually taken out on those who do wrong. And he, he talks about the sword here. 
He says they don't bear the sword in vain. And some, some scholars have used this as an argument solely for the death penalty, to say that the death penalty is, is, to, is right because they don't bear the sword in vain. And that is an overstep of the text. There is another phrase that would be used for capital punishment that is not used in Romans chapter 13. And I'm not speaking for or against the death penalty. But what I'm saying is this, is that sword here is a word for force. It was a, basically a word that would indicate the force that the government has to, 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 uh, to enforce their laws. And so we can think of the sword in this way. Speeding tickets, citations, uh, uh, community service, the threat of jail. What he's saying is that the, is that the government doesn't hold these things by God in vain for no purpose. They serve a purpose. And what is the purpose? It's to restrain evil. Sproul defines government in this way. He says, government, therefore, is simply defined as force. Force. Force, and then if we think of it under God, it is force to restrain sin for the benefit of human survival. So here's a quick application at this point. Quick application. Recognize that God is the God of all authority. And that God has a delegated authority in governing bodies. Now, also, a side application is this. Wicked governments ought to hear the prophetic word of the church, of us, as we say, you are under God. You will answer to God. You are accountable to Him. All right, my second point is this. Application. Live as if God is the God of authority. So my first point was basically just going through the big picture, trying to get that across that God is a God of authority and He's instituted the government. Secondly, let's live in that way. Let's live as if God is the God of authority. Look at verse 5. Paul begins to apply it with a therefore. He says, therefore, turning to application, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of consciousness. Why should we be in subjection to the government? Number one, it's for your good. Submit for your good to avoid God's wrath. Meaning... Follow the speed limit on 83 because there are five new speed cameras that are set up. And he's saying they don't bear the sword in vain. It's there for a reason so that you don't get uh, 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 seven to ten tickets in the mail from 83. Follow the speed limit. And you do it to the glory of God. In 2020, we were told to wear masks. We were told to not gather for six months, and we went along with that for our good. We don't throw trash in the harbor for the good of our waters. And when somebody does wrong, there is a punishment, and that punishment, he's saying, is ordained by God. So what does this do for us? This shows us how we live our lives Monday through Friday in all of these ways to the glory of God. To turn it another way, we don't follow the law because 
We are patriots. We don't do it out of a sense of honor, out of patriotism. Just because we love the red, white, and blue. This is not a passage about patriotism. As a matter of fact, may I remind you it was written in the first century. This is not about the United States government. It's about Rome. And it's about Caesar in this totalitarian regime. And he was saying these things in that context. But it's also about the United States. But it's not just about the United States. It's about the United Emirates. It's about Baghdad. and It's about Bolivia. It applies to every government everywhere. We don't honor the government because we're patriotic. We do it for the glory of God. Secondly, we do it for our own conscience, he says. So in verse 5, he says, not only for the wrath of God, to avoid the wrath of God, but uh, submit for the sake of your conscience. Now, what he means by that is, uh, is actually displayed historically in Acts chapter 24 with this powerful story where Paul is on, on, uh, uh, on trial before Felix. He's locked up for breaking laws, for, for, for saying things about Christ that he was not to say. He's locked up. He stands before Felix in Acts chapter 24, and Paul says, and I quote, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Notice he says, before God and man. So he's saying, obey for the sake of your conscience, so that when you appear before Felix, you can do as I do and say, I have a clear conscience. I haven't done anything wrong. And that gives you power then in your gospel proclamation before Felix. In other words, if you have a whole bunch of unpaid speeding tickets and you got the boot on your car and you're hopping the little thing in the subway station because you don't want to pay the money to get on the subway and um, you got a warrant out for uh, theft, you know, and then you appear before Felix with that kind of conscience, you're just going to have a hard time proclaiming Christ. Does that make sense? So what Paul is saying is, is we do it as witnesses, and that leads me to our, our third point, is we do this for our witness. We do it for our, our witness. We live honorably, as Peter said, we live honorably before all so that they might glorify God in heaven. We do it for our witness. Paul's application in verse 6 and 7 is to pay your taxes. Look at verse 6. He says, For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God according to this very thing. Pay all that is owed to them. Owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. How is that for an Easter sermon? Welcome to the Garden Church. This Saturday is tax day. Pay your taxes. Let's close in prayer. Why taxes? Well, I think taxes, taxes, you see, it's the one thing that we can all relate to. It's like the one thing that we all, it's like a, a weekly or biweekly, however often you get your pay stub, a way that we are feeling our subjection to the government. There is nothing worse than looking at your pay stub 
and seeing that state and federal tax line. And you see what your, your, uh, uh, your, your gross was. And then you see what your net was, is. We feel it. We feel that subjection. And what he's saying is, is that we can actually pay our taxes in a different way. Not to the glory of the state, but to the glory of the God that is behind the state. It's an interesting application. And it serves for our witness. It serves to enhance our witness before man. It serves to show the government that we are not trying to be rebels, especially in times of persecution. We live as dual citizens. Yes, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. But like the captive Jews in Babylon during Jeremiah's day, they were also citizens of Babylon for that time period. And they were told by Jeremiah, don't be rebels, don't, don't try to, uh, uh, you know, to do things that would bring problems upon you, but rather, he says, plant gardens and build houses and have kids and live there and seek the prosperity of the city, for in its prosperity you prosper. And so what he's saying is, is that we live in two kinds of kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. We're citizens of both. Right now, we are reminded, looking around at each other, that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And as we go out here, and as we drive up 83, and as we remember that they've just put those speed cameras up, we are reminded that we are citizens of earth, of Baltimore City. Now, how did Polycarp keep his testimony? How did Justin Martyr and Tertullian apply this text in their day? Well, the same way that we apply it today. So Justin, Justin Martyr, who was another one that was martyred for his faith, he wrote a defense of Christians. Because during this time, Christians were being slaughtered, they were being captured, and so he wrote a defense. And he said this, he says, more than others, we try to pay the taxes to, to those whom you appoint, as we have been taught by Christ. What he's saying is, is we pay our taxes. We pay our taxes. This is an actual application for a Christian who's looking at losing his life for the worship of Christ. He's saying we seek to, as Jesus commanded us, to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Tertullian, another one who likely died for his beliefs, wrote to a uh, magistrate. He said that we have served the emperor better than others because our God has appointed him as the emperor. My point is this, is even when Christians were being persecuted by the government, they were being commanded to do something they could not do, to say, Caesar is Lord. They were applying this text, and it, it bolstered their witness, emboldened their conscience so that they could freely proclaim Christ. Now, that leads me to this question. Before I close, I've got to ask this question. Are there times 
where civil disobedience is permitted? Are there times where, you know, Paul says in verse 2, do not resist. Are there times where it is right to resist? In other words, when Caesar demands our worship, how do we, uh, what do we do? When I think of the slavery laws in America and the slave code, which said that children born to slaves have no, not even a chance at freedom. When I think of segregation laws of the 20th century, when, I, when we think of any law today that would violate human rights or that would violate God's authority, when I think of any law today that would, that would hamper or hinder human flourishing, the question is, how do we respond? How do we respond in those times? Do we resist? The answer is simple. It is yes. As part of our witness, we are, at times, to resist. And even that I get from this text. Look at verse 7. Paul's not, you know, Paul is not, he's not saying something in this text that's going to get him in trouble with Caesar. But he gives a nod to Christ. Let me just read it. Look at verse 7. He uses the word owed. Give respect to all that are owed. Pay the taxes that are owed. Honor those who are owed their honor. Owed. Everybody say owed. What is owed of them? So Jesus said, he's, he's alluding to Jesus, and Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar, and then finish Jesus' statement for me. Give to God what is God's. You see, Caesar is not owed what is only God's. The dignity of human life is in God's hands, not in Caesar's hands. Morality is defined by God, not defined by Caesar. Ethics is defined by God, not defined by Caesar. And so we give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but we give to God what is God's. Caesar is not owed the honor that God is owed. Therefore, I must at times resist. And Christians did resist. One more quick example from the past. Theophilus of Antioch. He wrote to a pagan and he, and he said to this leader, he said, I, on, I honor the emperor, but I don't worship him. I honor him through praying for him. A few application points. One, it is our duty to say, I owe to God what I owe to God, and I will not give to Caesar what only belongs to God. In Acts 5, Peter is clear as he was commanded to not preach Christ, he says, we ought to obey God rather than man. When human life is on the line, when human dignity is threatened because of governing laws, we resist. And secondly, in a democracy, we the people have a voice. How does that change our reading of this text when we understand that we can be complicit with Caesar? It then would be clearly wrong for us to not stand up to laws that are unjust. It was right to call for an end to slavery. It, is right to call, it was right to call for a change to the segregation uh, in, in America. It was, it's right to oppose euthanasia, for example. It's right to... Uh, to oppose laws that would require states to fund surgeries that dam damage bodies. It is right to 
call for greater accountability of law enforcement officers. It's right to challenge laws which illegally detain innocent people. My friend Matt Martins, uh, we had a conversation with him on our podcast, The Stoop Sessions, check it out. Uh, like and subscribe, you know, the whole thing. And um, uh, just sounded like my son for a second there. And uh, uh, Matt, so Matt wrote this first Christian book on criminal justice reform. And when talking about application, what does it look like for us, we the people, to have a part in uh, justice in America? One thing that he pointed out, and I thought it was interesting, is this. You're not going to like it. Jury duty. He said, serve on juries and make sure that we don't put innocent people in jail. You know, just so many ways that we can actually take up to make sure that we are serving as under God. Are you with me? So on one hand, we submit to the government. On the other hand, we resist where we must resist. And on the third hand, if you have three hands, you act, you speak where you can speak. So what is the harm in saying Jesus is Lord Polycarp? What is the harm? No, there is a harm in saying Jesus is Lord. He died for it, Tony. He died because of it. What is the harm in saying Uh, Caesar is Lord. Come on, Tony. Let's have a conversation. Just going to sit up here with me. Tony, Caesar is Lord. No, Jesus is Lord. Come on, say Jesus is Lord with me. All right, that's the harm in it. I love how Tony helps me close my sermons here. Jesus is Lord. And so we obey him, not mere man. That was Polycarp's issue. And that's why he died. That's why he died. Defending the glory of Christ. Think about it. Let's think about Christ as we close here. This whole thing is about the authority of Christ. Christ, the very system that he ordained to protect people, sentenced Jesus to death. There's no greater atrocity that any government has ever committed than the atrocity that put Jesus on the cross. He had six trials, three of them uh, in front of the Jewish authorities, three of them in front of the Roman authorities, and in all six trials, he was condemned to death. The greatest injustice we ever see is Pilate washing his hands of Jesus Christ condemning him to death. And the crowds agreed. They shouted out, crucify him. They wanted to exchange Barabbas. And Barabbas was set free. A criminal. A murderer. Jesus created the system that he went under. Pontius Pilate was in place because of Jesus' command. The soldiers that put the nails in Jesus' feet and hands were under the authority of Jesus. Listen, Jesus willingly went under it. He went under it. He took on the greatest injustice. God sacrificed himself. Why? It's because we did not give what God, what God owed, what what we owed God. We did not give God what was owed to him. And as a result, Christ 
hung on that old rugged cross, so despised by the world, the emblem of suffering and shame. And there he hung and died for people like us, people who are authority rejectors, people that did not give God his due. He hung and died for us. And so we, our response, we cling to the cross. In this world of suffering, Tertullian clung to the cross. Justin Martyr clung to the cross. Polycarp clung to the cross. Paul clung to the cross. Peter clung to the cross. And those of us, rebels like us, who have been wowed by Christ, who have seen the Savior, we cling to the cross in this world of suffering. Until that day, one day, when the Lord of Lords comes again to rule and to reign. In the song that, that we sing, it says, we'll, we'll trade it for a crown. Which means that the suffering and the injustice of this world will be no more. Jesus will reign and we will reign with him, bearing the crown of his righteousness. Who is this Jesus? Isaiah, looking forward to his birth, said that the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Pilate could wash his hands of him, but Pilate could not wash him away. The authorities could condemn him, but they could not contain him. The soldiers could crucify him, but they could not keep him in the ground. And on the third day, up from the grave, he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor of this dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, church. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. He arose the coronation of the king. He arose as the king of kings. He arose as the Lord of lords. And then he said to his disciples, he said, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. You go now and make disciples of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus has all authority. We thank you that he is Lord God, and I pray that you would help us to live lives under Christ's rule in this world, that we would live lives for your glory, that we would live lives that are honorable so that all might see and honor you. God, help us to make disciples of Jesus Christ, the one who has all authority. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.